Alcohol Tipping Point is brought to you in partnership with Speak Studios and Speak Boise. Speak Boise is a community-driven studio space where voices from all walks of life can speak and be heard. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook at Speak Studios, Speak Boise, and at their website, speakstudios.com. Speak Studios, speak and be heard. back to the alcohol tipping point. Today on our podcast, we have a special guest, Shauna Cuny. She is a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. And we're going to talk a little bit about what a nurse practitioner does and then how that might help you um, if you are wanting to take a break from alcohol or wanting some help with your cravings or wanting someone to talk to. So hello, Shauna. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Debbie. So I am Sean. I you are. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about what you do. Um, like what is a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner? So a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner is an advanced practice nurse. So uh, I have a bachelor's in nursing and a master's in uh, nursing that focuses more on clinical work. And I specialized in psychiatric mental health nurse practitioning. So mine is more focused on the psychiatric mental health realm. Yeah. And then who might see you? And you could just talk about your role or just in general. I have a spectrum of people that might see me. Um, a lot of times on the extreme end, I'll see people that have gone to the point where it requires a medical intervention, detox. Uh, there's a lot of comorbid medical conditions that are involved. I've also been in a part of the legal realm. So I've at one point seen people in the penal system working at a prison. And that's the extreme end. On the mild end, I'll see people that maybe have gotten into some legal trouble and either have been referred to a psychiatric provider based on their probation officer or the judge or some legal intervention. And they'll come in for assistance in medications or just referrals. And on the, the lower end, I will see people whose lives are just dis, dis interrupted, either that's within family, work, social elements, those people usually come to see me when areas of life are impacted. And then I will assess, see them, and give medication or therapy or different resource referrals. Yeah, and so you're referring to people that may come because they have a, a drinking problem or that may come out in your... It may come out as we discussed. A lot of people have a little... They, they hold that kind of close to their vest. Some of them are real open and that is their presenting problem because they want help to stop drinking or drinking has impacted their marriage, their work, their friends, their family, or someone will present with maybe an anxiety, depression, some sort of a mood component, particularly in the year 2020. <laughs> you know, it's been, it's been an interesting year for everybody. So a lot of times I'll get somebody that will present with just a primary complaint of anxiety, depression, and during the, the course of the assessment, we'll find out that maybe alcohol has become a little problematic. Maybe not their initial 
problem, but something that definitely contributes to a worsening depressive or anxiety state. Yeah. And so this is all like outpatient. This is all outpatient. This is, this is, uh, Somebody calling in specifically for psychiatric treatment or oftentimes based on a referral from a primary care provider. A lot of times, psychiatric providers will get referrals from primary care that that maybe they aren't willing to or able to address in uh, just a routine wellness check. Okay, so you get referrals from like doctor's offices, um and that they will give you some, like, hey, you know, this person needs a little more specialized help. Right, right. It does, you know, alcohol and substance use in general does fall under the umbrella of many different specialties. So a lot of times your first line treatment is going to be a primary care provider. And depending on the severity or, or what or what is needed, there will be an additional referral to more of a specialty realm of medicine where psychiatry falls into that specialty area. So it's, it straddles a lot of different areas, you know, medical, a lot of times people don't realize the the impact of alcohol until there's lab work done. And there's a revelation that liver is impacted or blood pressure is elevated or blood sugars are elevated. And then after you go down the wormhole, Sometimes it's discovered that maybe alcohol is a contributing factor to those illnesses. Sure. Okay. So sometimes it it takes that initial, you go in for your wellness exam and, mm-hmm. and your lab work shows, hey, your liver function's a little high. Right. But let's talk about this. Okay. And then one of the reasons I wanted to have you on my show was because there, there are still meds that you could take on an outpatient basis to help with alcohol cravings um, and whatnot. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because this would be for yeah. someone. Well, why don't you explain what are the there options are, are? Medication. There is. Um, there's a. There's a probably more than I'm even going to mention, but there's three big ones that I use in my arsenal. Uh, one being that if someone comes in and, and we discuss their use and maybe maybe their use isn't quite to their level of problematic thinking or problematic drinking, then we might suggest just tools, tools to help. One of those being naltrexone, which is, is an alcohol dependence treatment by blocking opiate receptors in the brain. And by blocking those opiate receptors, it will reduce the reinforcing effects of alcohol. So say you have difficulty with limiting. So when one goes down, one went down real well, and so that leads to two, three, four, five. This naltrexone will block that reinforcing mechanism in the brain so that one is enough, where it just feels like, eh, well, I'm probably good with one. So naltrexone is a real popular option for people that are just wanting to cut down. Maybe not increase total abstinence, but they want to reduce their heavy days of drinking. This might be the preferred treatment for just reduction. Sure. And then I just want to share, like, I did try naltrexone. Um, I was able to ask my OBGYN to prescribe it um, because I I wasn't at the time, like, I didn't want to quit. I just wanted to cut down and I, I wanted more control. And for me, it did 
work for a while, I thought. I remember going to Tree Fort Festival, which is a big musical festival downtown, and I had two beers, and I was like, whoa. And I didn't want any more. Right. And I thought, right. wow, shoot, that, I'm cured. Like, I can moderate. This is fantastic. Um, but then I also took it when I went on a trip to Mexico, <laughs> <laughs> and I went to uh, Cabo, and we went to Cabo Wabo, and I remember this very well because that was the first night that my sister met her future husband, and he was buying us buckets of Corona, and I was drinking it like water, of course. I think it is Mexican water, right? Corona. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I had taken naltrexone, and it I mean, it, it didn't work. And I remember the next day I had one of the worst hangovers of my life. We took a little bus ride through the back roads of Mexico and I was so sick. We were in a van and we were going to do a zip lining tour. So I was like zip lining, feeling like I was going to throw up, pounding headache. I mean, it was awful, Shauna. Oh, that's that's not rallying. That's just cruel. Yeah. So, but my whole point was naltrexone, I thought for a while worked for me and then it didn't and then it made me tired. And then in, in mm -hmm. the end, I just was like, maybe I need to do a different route. It is, it is less effective in people who are not abstinent at the time the treatment's initiated. So if you if you do continue a pattern and then introduce that, it doesn't work quite as well unless there's been a period of abstinence. So that could have been the factor. But and also, you know, it's a timing thing with that one, which is sort of the less than ideal medication. If you if you know exactly when that that urge or those triggers start to hit, the best route is to take that approximately an hour before your normal pattern. So if you're an after work drinker. If you take it at 4 o'clock, it'll have an hour to kick in. But if you don't take it consistently, it doesn't work as well. So that, that's one of those, those pros and cons of it. There is an injectable form of it called Vivitrol. But that's, that's signing up for a in monthly injection. And, an option. Yeah. And, and w would you use it as a, a, just a tool, like, to help you cut down? Or would it be like, hey... Maybe you should be on this long-term. Well, you know, it works. With these kinds of things, augmentation with behavioral, educational, or supportive therapy, you know, as is, is an individual therapy or even group therapy, is probably the best, you know, mix to help that succeed the most. But that's, you know, again, this whole thing is based on individuals. So that's just one option. You can, I have people that take that in... It just it just alone as a monotherapy and do fine. Yeah, and then they don't and then they don't do fine, and so that it but it doesn't make you ill. That's that's the nice part about that medication. Which, you know, they're speaking of medication. There is some medications that people do take that actually are cause a cause a physical reaction. So the medication I'm thinking of there is Anabuse. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's been around a long time, right? Oh, it's been around a long time. And it's one that, frankly, I'm, I'm a bit fearful of on the prescribing end. Because what it does is it irreversibly inhibits 
um, the enzyme that breaks down alcohol and turns it into it turns uh, it into formaldehyde. So it can definitely be, cause you to become ill. That's the the works with that medication is that it immediately will make you ill if you consume any type of alcohol. But that includes face washes, that includes mouthwash, all those hidden things. So even if you're not ingesting alcohol, if you're yeah, yeah, if you're if you're around alcohol in any form, it causes causes you to become pretty physically ill. So why would someone choose an abuse? I, you know, it's a lot of that reinforcement, you know, that, you know, going back to sort of all sort of behavioral training, where if something causes you to have an adverse reaction or illness, you're more averse to to using that substance again. We're, we as humans, you know, we tend to, to stay away from things that make us ill. So that is one of those ways that can reinforce you by, you know, fear, people fearing it because it's it does cause you to be so, so ill. Individuals who are made, motivated to abstain from alcohol entirely is this is, this is a attractive option for them. It does have low adherence rate because the one thing about that is if you don't take it, then you're able to do whatever it is that, that the brain drives you to do. So it should not be given to a person in a state of, of not being sure if they want to stop alcohol entirely. Okay. So now Trexon would be more for someone who just not ready to stop, wanting to cut back. Reduction. Reduction. And abuse is not. And abuse is is a tool for people that really want to maintain entire abstinence. Okay. And then the third one that is common is a medication called acromprosate or Camprol is the other name for that one. And what that is, is by class, it, it's also an alcohol dependence treatment. Um, it reduces an excitatory chemical in your brain called uh, GABA, which is gamma-aminobutyric acid. So it binds to that receptor so that it, it causes the alcohol to lead into, a, a, it acts as artificial alcohol to mitigate those, those effects of alcohol. So it sort of mimics what alcohol does in the brain by decreasing the, the GABA, that glutamate in the brain. So, so explain that. Alcohol. Yeah. Explain it to me like I'm a third grader. <laughs> well, maybe, well, maybe like, a junior high kid. <laughs> well, so if somebody, it feels like they are dependent on that medication, on, on the alcohol, dependent on that substance, they, they don't, they, they don't want to stop. It essentially will bind to a receptor in your brain that blocks an excitatory chemical from being released. And because withdrawal of alcohol following chronic administration can lead to excessive glutamate, that bad, that excitatory chemical, this, this acomphrosate or camphorol acts as artificial alcohol to mitigate those excitatory effects. So is that saying if you take Camprol and you drink alcohol, you're not going to have like the quote unquote positive effects of alcohol? Not so much in that respect, but it, it, it mimics the effects of what alcohol does for somebody that maybe drinks alcohol for anxiety, for dependence, because they feel like they need to tamper down all those, all those, you know, the brain is a very rotten mechanism when it wants what it wants. 
So it'll fire dopamine receptors just with the thought of thinking about alcohol. It'll fire glutamate receptors just by the thought of, I'm going to go drink. So you can get excited and actually have physical symptoms of excitement just with the very thought of drinking. So this careful will reduce those thoughts by tampering down that, that release of that excitatory chemical. Okay. So you don't have like that anticipation, like, oh, it's right. five o'clock. I'm going to happy hour. I'm so excited. Right. And you get excited. You, you start to think, all right, it's on. We are such a society of rewarding ourselves. We sure I are. Work today. Yeah, I'm going to go have a drink. I worked. I'm going to go have a drink. I, I went to the kids' baseball game. It, we're very much about rewarding ourselves. Yep. This helps decrease that reward. We're rewarding ourselves for good or bad or any, like oh. we, we earned it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that, that's the script we tell ourselves a lot is I'm doing okay. So therefore I can do this. Well, how do you break that? Oh boy. That is the question. It's, you know, we, the, that's where the challenge comes in. The challenge of, you know, just trying to find different coping skills Alcohol, as it's not one of the better, is still a coping skill. So yeah, it because gets those times. Yeah, I mean, in the short term, for that hour or two, it works. Uh huh. Yep. But then it becomes one of those real insidious deals where I have to have it, or I'm not going to be able to function. I have to have it, or I can't socialize. I have to have it, or I. I'm not a good enough parent because I can't relax and I'm getting irritable with my children. For the short term, you think, ah, this calms me. Long term, you're more irritable. You're more, you're less attentive to your friends and family. Yeah, and it's it's really hard to, like you said, we reward ourselves. Like we want instant gratification. It's mm-hmm. it's really hard to delay that. And, Run the tape forward. How are you going to feel tomorrow versus how you feel now? Right, right. Thinking about what you want for the future instead of what you want for right now is a tough thing for, for humans to do. Okay, so you have those three meds that are options. Right. Um, and we talked a little bit about who they might be for who they might not be for. Um, what are some other ways you might treat alcohol use? Well, you know, there is, there's a number of, of different, different treatment options. You know, I think that maybe talking to a supportive person is, is one of those options. I know that when someone comes and sees me, one of the things that is probably viewed in our profession is that we're just going to sit there and throw meds on you without listening. You know, um, my role is primarily pharmacological, but for me personally, I like to hear what my patients are struggling with. And my role is more directed at pharmacology, but I'm also able to give referrals, recommendations, or just education. The majority of my occupation is rapport building and building teams centered around individual needs. So I, I don't really come in with the thought of this is what you have to do because this is what society deems as healthy and this is unhealthy. I don't like categories. But I try to meet you where you're at and 
try to find out what what it is that that is reasonable for you, what's affordable for you, and also what you're you're apt to likely do. I can give you all the recommendations in the world, but if it's not something feasible for your life or for this time, it won't work. Yeah, one hundred percent. And and you do that as a specialist. What what do you think you know? about the general medical community and, and how they treat alcohol? Oh, you know, there's been a move away towards the negative terminology. Back when I first started, which I've been in this role for 10 plus years, it used to be called an alcohol abuse disorder. And that gave the, the connotation that, that alcohol was bad and that you're abusing it and that You can't, you know, we've got to take that away from you and here's how you fix it. Now we're moving towards a way of just ways of phrasing. If we don't use clean or dirty anymore, which was a a common phrase, because that insinuates that you're doing something bad. Now we're using use disorder versus abuse disorder. So there's just like little, little phrasing changes. And I think that, I think it's really keeping up with the education on an ever evolving system of of treatment options where people are the the decrease in the stigma regarding substance use i think that some providers may not be up to speed on that whereas the education is constantly evolving and we need to be up on that because it's really how we're going to help people yeah and i mean and talking about stigma and labeling um, and what we call, you know, the alcoholic is not a term used in the medical community. No, no. No, because what does an alcoholic mean? That, that's always been the, the million-dollar question. Is an alcoholic someone that has legal ramifications and they maybe got a DUI and so you officially get stamped alcoholic? Or is alcoholic someone who has an, a liver impairment uh, maybe even even cirrhosis of the liver, does that finally stamp them into alcoholic? Or is it someone who's gone through divorces and estrangement from their children and unable to maintain or keep work? Is that an alcoholic? So that, that term is real great. Well, and then because now the term is alcohol use disorder, right? right. And, it, and it goes from mild to to. A more it's a spectrum like you said it's it's not black or white you don't have to hit rock bottom uh, to have a problem with alcohol it to be causing problems in your life I mean you could just be drinking too much on the weekend and that's causing you problems in your life it doesn't you don't have to hit rock bottom exactly if you know that it's becoming more of a part of your day to procure it to use it to be with people with it, that that alone can be an eye-opener for people. Or just not waking up feeling like going on that run or going to the gym. Oh, yeah, I got tired of, of feeling like shit. <laughs> I know when you're young, you what? can go and sweat it out. When you're older, oh, yeah. it's, it's not as easy as all that, you know. And you really, there's nothing like waking up like that and realizing that, boy, I got to change something. I am, I am hard to get up this morning. Yeah. And, and, and that cycle that happens then that shame cycle of, oh, I drink too much. You wake up, you feel like shit. Um, 
but what's going to alleviate feeling like shit and feeling bad about yourself? Having a little nip. <laughs> care of the dog. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that, that is such a, and it's, and it's different for everybody because there are some people that I'm sure you've been around that have said, Oh, I've got an amazing tolerance. I can drink and drink and drink and drink and never get hung over. That's probably problematic too. That is, that's an indicator that something's gone awry. If you're able, if your tolerance builds and you're able to drink more without the effects. Yeah. That's a, gotta be a little bit of a red flag. What, well, tell me going back to that loop, like you in a prior conversation had talked about the anxiety and alcohol loop. Can you explain that? Well, that is, it's such a, such an interesting, interesting phenomenon as far as presenting with anxiety. After we go through and we kind of look into family history and, and the anxiety and how it presents, there is a, there's definitely a familial link to, to alcoholism, anxiety, all that is very genetic. So a lot of times there are people that when they're young, find alcohol as something that makes them maybe more talkative, maybe more outgoing. Maybe these are people that struggle with social anxiety and difficulty meeting people. Alcohol gives you a, a bit of early liquid courage. People become more outgoing and they feel like they're their more authentic self on alcohol. The problem with that becomes that need to continue to drink in order to feel comfortable in your body, comfortable in a social situation. So alcohol is an easy crutch. It's an easy tool to just turn to in order to feel like you're, you're able to communicate without that anxiety and that looming dreaded voice that says, nobody likes you. You're not making sense. You should go home. You know, that, that's a paralyzing feeling as well. And alcohol gives you a temporary reprieve from that feeling. Long term, what it does is it is a chemical at the end of the day. So alcohol is going to act as a depressant and a stimulant. And, and all sorts of different receptors in your brain are going to respond in like to that alcohol. So what happens is over time, you, get, you, you, might, you might get that relief at that night. But then unlike someone who doesn't have a problem with drinking, you're not going to bounce back as easy as your friends. So that depression and anxiety are going to hang on long, long after other people have experienced that. So then, then that feeling down on yourself, that loop of beating yourself up, feeling ho- like a horrible person continues until the next day when you have that alcohol again. So that's that loop. Yeah. Negative, and, negative feedback loop. And, it, and it's interesting that alcohol is a chemical that is both a depressant and a stimulant, like... That really right, and so it, it's with your brain. <laughs> it messes with your brain, and it's it's like putting gas on a fire. So if you're depressed or anxious, alcohol is going to flame that up even more. Over the long term, that's the problem. Is you know, with tobacco as an example, you know, when we were kids, we were told if you smoke, you're going to die. It's going to kill you, but it doesn't kill you in three weeks. It doesn't kill you in a month. It kills you in 56 years, <laughs> then it's it's not going to end well. The same with alcohol. It might work for that short term. It might benefit you for the short term. But in the long term, it's going to come with consequences. If it, if it keeps maintaining as as the only answer to why you can function. Yeah, that's such a good point. Like we, we don't realize 
the day-to-day accumulation of our bad habits. Because oh, um, yeah. no. day-to-day, it's not so bad, but then as years go by, it's worse and worse. Yeah, you know, and as a lighter example, I probably drink too many diet root beers. <laughs> probably if I sat them on the counter and looked at what I do throughout the day, Anybody that looks at that is going to go, that's disgusting and super unhealthy. But I can ignore a lot of that by saying, eh, I, I enjoy a few here and there. I like my diet root beer. But when you look at it in, in all of its mass, it's too much. Same with alcohol. One drink, two drinks, three drinks, four drinks, and, you know, outside of, of the reality of what it looks like, it, 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 the brain doesn't have to really recognize it as a problem. Yeah, 100%. Well, let's let's kind of review what we talked about today. So just, you know, if you want to see a nurse practitioner, someone like you, how would someone go about doing that? Uh, it, you know, uh, if you want to see a nurse practitioner that specializes in psychiatry, which would include substances, substance treatment, you could ask your primary care doctor for a referral, or you can go directly to a clinic or a private practice with someone that, that specializes in that. I, I happen to be a nursing-focused model, which is more, more patient-centered, but there's also the option of a psychiatrist who's more focused on the, the medical model, but both are really viable options. And when you see a psychiatric nurse practitioner or a psychiatrist, the one thing that is important is to let them know upfront what you're looking to get help with. You know, that's an important way to direct a, an interview or an intervention is to find out what it is specifically that you're looking to achieve out of that appointment. If it's medications, great. If it's a referral, great. There's a lot of different options. And then the meds you talked about, the naltrexone to help with the cravings, the Camprol, and the Anabuse, if you, if you wanted to try that, um, who could you do that through? Who can you get a prescription? You do that through a nurse practitioner or a psychiatrist. There, there is a, a great opportunity for discussion when you see a medical provider. So that might not be something that that provider chooses to do based on maybe your, your concomitant health issues or feasibility. A lot of these can be expensive, but it's an option to start talking to that provider about what you, what you've researched, what you've heard about and maybe options for you. Yeah. And when you say provider, who are you referring to? Provider is more a prescriber um, in this, in this context. So somebody that has prescriptive ability. So a doctor, a nurse practitioner, doctor, a PA, yeah. you could talk to your OBGYN like I did. You could talk to your OBGYN in there. And that it's really who you're comfortable talking to. If you have an established good relationship with your OBGYN, and Lord knows they know a lot about you <laughs> in ways that you never inside, really wanted to. Inside and out. <laughs> and out. But they are a great resource to kind of break that Um there's a lot of times that I know you go to your doctor and they, they really do want to focus on the labs or the particular problem. And alcohol, you know, being one of those things that if, you know, if you want to discuss more options, they may refer you just to just to be 
able to help you with with uh, more of a, a specialized area of concern. But they're certainly a great resource to start. Yeah. And I mean, hopefully a great resource. I mean, I I have talked to providers and gotten the opposite, like, well, I think I, I drink too much. And, and then you tell them how much and they're like, you're fine, honey. It's okay. Have a, and, and you also have doctors, PAs, whoever that tell you, why don't you have a drink to relax? Why don't you, you know, that are almost going the opposite way. Like here, have this chemical. Um, right. Don't worry. You're too wound up. Go have a drink. Especially if you're high functioning. Right. Absolutely. Like, uh, it doesn't look like a problem for you. Um no, and because you're high functioning, you're going to present the best version of yourself. They're really not going to know what goes on in the closet or at the light of dawn or the, you know, the middle of the night. They're not going to know what is actually going through your head because as a functioning person, you're putting your best foot forward. Yeah. And that's, that's sometimes hard to read. And that's where psychiatry can be a nice help because we do dig out those layers a little bit more than a, a primary care doctor will. Yeah, or even a, a counselor can do that, right. but a counselor cannot prescribe medication. So if you no, want to, yeah, there there are some psychologists that do individual counseling that now have prescriptive rights and will prescribe. Those are those are not not really the run of the mill providers in Idaho just as of yet, but it's it's on the move. It's a transition that's coming. Okay. Um, and then what, well, let me ask you this. Is there anything I haven't asked that I should ask? Um, no, you know, I, I feel like people have to arrive to a conclusion or change on their own, but there are tools like medication or education that can be AIDS. And, you know, I know that I'd like to see more programs available for people have difficulty with the 12-step program or the religious element in some of the abstinence programs, I'd like to see more options or alternatives to the 12 steps. Um, as I don't know if that's, that's something to ask, but it's something that's on my mind, that this does sort of put a wall up to the people getting treatment, is they think they have to follow one way, and that's not true. Yeah, I, I, and that's what I'm trying to do with the alcohol tipping point, is just like, fill in that gap. You don't have to go to AA. You don't have to go to inpatient rehab. You, I mean, it is so great. There are so many other ways to treat alcohol misuse. Um, right. Like you said, like these tool, these meds are a tool you could use. Um, there's other counseling is a tool you can use. You can join an online group. You know, there's just so yeah. many, you can do coaching, there's so many different tools that you can use to treat it. You don't have to treat Absolutely. it one yeah. way. Especially in today's day and age. But, you know, it, one thing to impress upon people is it is it is difficult to find something that works quick. Yeah, as you know, Debbie, it takes a lot of hard work and it takes a power that, you know, that you want to change. And sometimes it's difficult on this end to get people to trust the process, particularly when they're looking for a quick fix. There are no quick fixes. Yeah, 100%. It's a journey. Um, and that's also why I don't agree to the 100% abstinence. Like, 
that part of the AA model where if you aren't perfect and you relapse, you start over. I, I think that that is really detrimental to people getting help that, I mean, you don't start out learning a new language in a day. You, you have right. to constantly study and practice at it beca- before you are proficient in it. And so why do we expect perfection with, if you want to quit alcohol, you can never have it. Like why? I, I just, I think that's a harmful way of and it's a harmful way, but, you know, and that again goes with the spectrum that we talked about earlier of people. You know, there are the rainbow of people that on the one end, they, alcohol is so problematic and the dependence is such a problem for that person that they, they, they might've had no business in the first place ever drinking just because of genetic predisposition, environmental factors. Sometimes people on those extreme ends, that's hard to, it's a, that's a hard, hard balance to, to arrive at. And sometimes that total abstinence with a good community helps them. I get, but then on the other end, there are those that say, you know, the minute you tell me I can't do something is the minute the urge is going to go higher and higher and higher. And I'm going to want to find a way to do it. Those, those are the people that, that are more likely to come and see me. And that's where the help and the tools and the aid can come in. Yeah. Well, I guess what I'm saying is you, you can't, it's very hard to get to 100% abstinence mm-hmm. on Absolutely. day one, on day one, like. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and also you really do have to think about, you know, what are you going to fill those gaps in? One of the biggest failing, one of the biggest obstacles to recovery is the excess time. So you have to take all that time for curing or using alcohol and people tend to fail to replace that time with something else. Alcohol becomes the way people deal with crisis and it's how they deal with emotions. So alcohol becomes the tool that works best. So, you know, back to that hard work, but you talked in your first episode about, you know, keep, keeping those routines together. Huge. Huge. Because you don't want to sit there with time on your hand and your brain working on, I don't feel good. I'm bored. I got a drink. Yeah. You really just take the hard work. And I think your brain just needs to replace, like you are in a groove and it's pretty tough groove. I mean, it's like a train track and it is, <laughs> it's hard to turn a train as you know. So maybe you're still on the train track, but you're stopping off and drinking a Diet Coke and not a, a beer or something, you right. know, or you're, you have to fill that with something else. I mean, that's why people get into doing puzzles. And well, actually, mm-hmm. it was interesting during the pandemic when everything was shut down. Remember, people started filling time with random activities. I oh, mean, yeah, or old ones. Picking up old paint by numbers and oh, it was it was wonderful. (laughs) I don't think some of that should ever go away. (laughs) On the other end, some people did really shelf their liquor cabinet. (laughs) This is true. There were people that you know we were told that it was going to be eight weeks. Nobody was prepared for one year long adventure. No, so you know that it's great to kind of find the inner child and and play. We don't play anymore. No, and 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 guess what. Little children don't drink. I always go back to, I kind of think about like how we treat our bodies as adults. Like we would never, and this, besides alcohol and the chemicals we put into it, like you would never give a, a one-year-old like a bunch of candy and 
pop and yeah. <laughs> like you don't treat oh, your your young no. remember that first cigarette you ever tried and how sick you got and green and then somewhere in your mind you're like gotta keep pushing through <laughs> that first one wasn't good but maybe if i try harder i'll really get it to stick well even that first drink of alcohol is like oh my god oh. yeah how do adults drink this it's so gross <laughs> yes <laughs> I remember oh. I had a glass of white wine on the counter and Alice, oh my gosh, it was probably like four and she thought it was water and took a drink and she was like, she just started crying like, what is this? <laughs> like it was, blew her mind. Oh, and they're so afraid of you. Like surely you're going to die if you drink this, mom. <sighs> Crazy. Oh. Okay. Well, Shauna, thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your expertise and, and giving us just more ideas, more tips, tools, and thoughts uh, that can help the listener if they're sober curious or sober and, and needing a little extra help as well or wherever they are on their journey. Thank You're you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, anytime. Well, I think we're done. And have a great day, everyone. Keep going. I believe in you and you're worth it. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point. I'm always here for you guys. So please feel free to reach out and talk to me on Instagram at Alcohol Tipping Point and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com. Again, I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, see you next time.